This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you have attended a university in the past five years or so, or perhaps are about to, or live near one, or work in one, then you know that one of the hottest issues stirring up campuses is the question of how best to respect and to accommodate the perspectives and also the sensitivities of students who belong to traditionally marginalized groups. Forty years ago, it was fairly straightforward. Most students, most, came from basically similar backgrounds and were not likely capable of saying anything in a classroom or in a dorm that would make another student in the group feel attacked or erased because of their membership in the group that he or she, usually he, came from. But it is different uh, when today's campuses are more diverse than ever before, at least in certain categories of identity. For minority students, for LGBT students, for female students, should colleges provide so-called safe spaces in which they know that they won't, while they're in those spaces, be exposed to speech that wounds in such an existential way? And if so, how should those spaces be designed? Or does going that way at all come with more pitfalls than benefits, canceling out the ethos of free speech and robust discussion that most people would say is the key component of education? Well, we think in all of this, we have the makings of a debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two experts in this topic who will argue for and against the motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience at the Fairmont Banff Springs Hotel in Banff, Canada, will choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. So our motion is trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Let's meet the debaters. Here first, the team arguing for the motion. Please welcome David Hudson, Jr., David, welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. You're a professor of law at Vanderbilt. You are the author, uh, co-author, co-editor of more than 40 books, including Let the Students Speak, a history of the fight for free expression in American schools. You're also First Amendment ombudsman for the Museum Institute's First Amendment Center. That is a lot of First Amendment going on in your life. So what sparked your interest first in free speech? John, it was very personal. I uttered a phrase in one of my high school classes, uh, and was asked to leave. I got kicked out of class. So that censorship incident is what inspired my interest in free That's speech. That's so interesting. All right, well, thanks very much for that insight into what got you going. And can you tell us, please, who your partner is in this debate? Yes, it's the great Suzanne Nossel. Ladies and gentlemen, Suzanne Nossel. <laughs> Suzanne, welcome also to you to Intelligence Squared U.S. You are CEO of PEN America. Before that, you were COO of Human Rights Watch, Executive Director of Amnesty International USA, you also served in the Clinton administration, the Obama administration. You were Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations. The organization you're at now, PEN America, released a widely read and commented on a report on the state of campus free speech. What prompted PEN America to even look at college campuses on that point? Yeah, we were worried that the two sides of this debate were talking past each other, which I know we're not going to do tonight. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Again, the team arguing for the motion. And we have two debaters arguing against. Please welcome Ash Bhagwat. Ash, welcome. You are a professor of law at UC Davis. You've written a number of books and articles on a whole wide range of legal topics, including constitutional law and free speech law. Uh, most recently, you're the author of a book called The Myth of Rights, The Purposes and Limits of Constitutional Rights. So, Della, are our rights a myth? You know, to quote the Pirates of the Caribbean, the Bill of Rights is more like guidelines. Um, <laughs> you have rights, but they mean a lot less than most people think. Oh, how interesting as well. All right. Thanks very much. And can you tell us who your partner is? Um, Michael Roth. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michael Roth. 
Michael Roth, uh, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are right in the middle of all of this. You are president of Wesleyan University. Uh, you're a public advocate for liberal education. You're the author of several books, including Beyond the University, Why Liberal Education Matters. You've been a professor of history. You still teach since 1983. That's 35 years by our count. And you've described sort of your summing up scholarly interest as how people make sense of the past. What does that mean exactly? I'm very interested in how people carry around their memories, how they work within traditions, sometimes how they deal with past traumas. Um, And I'm extremely interested as a teacher to understand when I have students in front of me how they bring not just that morning's breakfast with them, they also are bringing their past, their memories. Okay, well, I see some relevance for tonight in that. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion, please. One more. And so to the debate, we will start with round one. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first for the motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Here is Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America. So the Oxford Dictionary defines safe spaces as, quote, a place or environment in which a person or category of people can feel confident that they will not be exposed to discrimination, criticism, harassment, or any other emotional or physical harm. Key to that definition is freedom from emotional harm. If we were talking only about physical harm, no one thinks campuses should be places where assaults, hazards, or other physical harms can occur. I don't think anybody could argue against safe spaces categorically. If I lie on a hammock reading or romp in the backyard with my pet, I'm not going to be exposed to discrimination, criticism, harassment, or other emotional harm. At a Shabbat dinner on a college campus, an iftar celebration, freedom from emotional harm might be virtually assured. Freedom of association mandates that those groupings, Black House, Hillel House, are perfectly permissible on campus. Clubs, teams, and religious associations are a vital and vibrant part of university life. The key is that students enter into those settings voluntarily and that the bonds that unite them and the span for disagreement are things that the students navigate themselves. The use of the term safe spaces that has provoked controversy and what we're really here to discuss tonight has two elements. One is where it obtains. Is it to large swaths of a university, a whole dining hall, a residential college, a classroom, or even, as some have argued, a campus as a whole? The second contentious element is the idea that administrators or institutions should be charged with policing or governing what speech is permissible and what is out of bounds. It's those other elements of the definition, exposure to criticism or any other emotional harm. Those distinguish enforcement of a safe space from simply upholding legal protections. And that's really the crux of the matter tonight. Focusing on enforcing safe spaces is a dangerous distraction from the university's core role. Kids come to college to gain skills, exposure, connections, and networks. If colleges concentrate on enforcing safe spaces, that's going to detract from their responsibility to afford students the opportunity to deal with difficult ideas in uncomfortable situations and build the confidence they need that they can survive. Enforcing safe spaces can exacerbate dangerous divisions in our society. Our society is deeply polarized. By sealing off large parts of the campus to guard against certain ideas and viewpoints, we're going to make that problem worse. We foreclose the possibility of engagement and bridging of differences. Defining safety is vague and inherently subjective, running the risk of viewpoint-based discrimination. A space that's safe for supporters of the Israeli government could feel very unsafe for supporters of Palestinian activism or vice versa. For universities to adjudicate such spaces runs the risk of First Amendment violations for public universities and a betrayal of purpose for private schools like Yale. Declaring safe spaces can leave students dangerously exposed once they graduate. If students believe they need and should expect intellectual and emotional safety on campus, they may be frighteningly ill-prepared for the world they encounter thereafter. And finally, the emphasis on safe spaces is triggering a heavy-handed backlash from state legislatures and the Department of Justice that could endanger inclusivity on campuses. 17 U.S. states have introduced legislation to police speech on campus, and the Department of Justice has intervened in a series of cases. If you don't believe that government intervention of free speech is the answer, vote for the proposition that safe spaces are dangerous. Thank you so much. Thank you, Suzanne Nossel. And the resolution, again, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, please welcome Ash Bhagwat, law professor at UC Davis. All of us are used to safe spaces. They're places to regroup, to gather with people we like, to gather with people we trust, and think together. We call them home. We call them churches. I call them beer night. Um, But it's a standard part of human nature. Free speech is important. 
I believe in free speech. I've made a career out of writing about free speech. But nobody believes that everyone should be exposed to unlimited free speech everywhere and anywhere. And once one accepts that idea, one accepts the idea of safe spaces. Most obviously, all of us are going to go home. I'm going to hang out with friends and family. That's a safe space. I expect it to be a safe space. Everyone, my opponents in this debate, feel the same way about their homes. Um, that's a normal part of life. Now think about students at a residential campus. Sure, part of the reason they're there is to learn, to debate, to be exposed to new ideas, to learn how to refute ideas they disagree with. But that campus is their home. And indeed, it is their home in a more full way than even my home. I don't spend 24-7 at home. I leave for my job. They are on campus 24-7. If we all expect to be able to go to a place and feel safe, why shouldn't they? They are, after all, young people. They have the same rights as we do. Furthermore, safe spaces are not limited to home. We often meet with people outside of home. We go to places where we know we'll be comfortable. The idea that college students, the only safe space they're entitled to is their tiny little dorm room. I have seen dorm rooms. You can't have much of a safe space there. That's just not plausible. You need spaces on campus. You need spaces in your home area. And I have no trouble with the idea that college administrators can accommodate that by designated parts of campus, not all of campus, I'm not, I think that's going far too far, but parts of campus, rooms, buildings, as safe spaces, because that just gives students the same things that all of us assume we have. What about free speech? The First Amendment protects free speech, but the First Amendment, as Sam said, also protects freedom of association. And that is what I am talking about, gathering together with like-minded people, people you trust, people you agree with, is in fact freedom of association. It is within these intimate associations that we develop our ideas, we develop our strategies for how to communicate our ideas, we decide what we believe in, we decide what we don't believe in. Speech does not come out of a vacuum, and human beings are not autonomous entities, we are social animals, and we develop our ideas together in these safe spaces. And that is why sometimes associational privacy trumps freedom of speech. Safe spaces debate has become conflated with the debate over controversial speakers on campus, usually conservative speakers, triggering protests. Those are separate questions. The safe spaces debate is driven by a desire to be left alone, which I think is perfectly reasonable. The controversial speakers debate is driven by anger. Anger over ideas that students believe, sometimes legitimately, sometimes not, to be out of bounds. we really need to separate those two questions because the controversial speaker stuff is complicated. Obviously, violence is over the top. And obviously, university administrators have the difficult job of accommodating those two interests. That's a completely different matter. Safe spaces are standard, normal, and students are entitled to them. Law professor Ash Bhagwad arguing against the motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Should we require college administrations to protect students from offensive speech, or should we let the students loose in the marketplace of ideas? After the break, we'll hear another set of opening arguments from First Amendment scholar David Hudson, Jr., and from Michael Roth, president of Wesleyan University. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24/7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. A reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. Trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. You have heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third. Debating for the motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Here is David Hudson, Jr., First Amendment scholar and law professor at Vanderbilt University. Ladies and gentlemen, David Hudson. Safe spaces that protect students from offensive or disagreeable speech are anathema to the First Amendment and the freedom of expression that we all hold sacrosanct. Safe spaces infringe upon core fundamental First Amendment principles. The first one is the so-called marketplace of ideas. It's traced back to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in his dissenting opinion in Abrams v. United States in 1919. When he wrote... But when men have realized in fighting face 
They have come to believe that the ultimate good desired is better reached through free trade and ideas. That the best test of thought is the freedom of the thought to get itself accepted into the competition of the market. In the United States Supreme Court, in Kaishian versus Board of Regents in 1967, proclaimed that the college classroom is peculiarly the marketplace of ideas. If you have a safe space, then you are preventing certain ideas from entering the marketplace. The second principle is the counter-speech doctrine. And the counter-speech doctrine essentially means that when we are confronted with harmful, obnoxious, and even repugnant speech, our first response should not be to censor that speech, but to counter it, to show why it's wrong, to come up with a better alternative. This theory is traced back to Justice Louis Brandeis, In Whitney versus California in 1927, he wrote, If there be time to expose through discussion the falsehood and fallacies, to avert the evils by the processes of education, the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence. The problem with safe spaces is it leads to the silencing and suppression of speech. We don't want that. We want more speech. The First Amendment protects a great deal of offensive, obnoxious, and even repugnant speech. The idea of shielding students from ideas contradicts that principle, right? We want to protect offensive and even disagreeable speech. That's how we learn. The fourth fundamental First Amendment principle is that a lot of speech is in the eye of the beholder. What is offensive to some people may not be offensive to another person. That's why these safe spaces are dangerous. Sir Isaac Newton, Copernicus, Galileo, they were all ridiculed, ostracized when they first issued some of their theories. If we had safe spaces, would we shut all those great thinkers down? We want speech to enter the marketplace of ideas. We want to counter negative speech with positive speech. We want to protect even offensive, obnoxious, and repugnant speech because that's the essence of who we are, and that's the essence of education. Thank you very much, David Hudson. The motion again, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Our final speaker in the opening round, who will be speaking against the motion, Michael Roth, president of Wesleyan University. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Roth. Thank you. There, there are a lot of good ideas out here, and I don't know if this is actually a marketplace or not, but clearly the issue can be distorted so that it's easier to take a stand. No one is really arguing that all students all the time should be protected against any disagreeable idea. Nobody has ever argued that. That's just never happened. The idea of safe spaces originated right after the Second World War. Corporate America said, you know, one of the problems with the business world today is that people who work at my company are afraid of telling me the truth. I'm the president of Wesleyan. I go up to say, what do you think of how I'm doing at Wesleyan? And people say, oh, you're doing fine, sir. I say, you don't have to call me sir. Just call me President Roth. And they don't actually tell me the truth. So after the Second World War, some good social psychologists, mostly from Central Europe, came along and said, what we need here is a safe space. That's the words they use. They said, we need a safe space where employees can say, you know, President Roth, you've got your head in the wrong direction. And they could do that without fear of retaliation or attack. That was the definition of a safe space. Still works pretty well for me. You can speak your mind without fear of retaliation or attack. When I was a student at Wesleyan in the 70s, it was pretty normal for professors to come to class, and co-education was pretty new at Wesleyan in those days. They said, well, I'm a nerdy 28-year-old. I want to have sex with someone who's 19. My students are available. So they used their powers of free expression to comment on students' legs, on their attire. Now, he said, I'm just exercising my professorial duties. I care about that student. We need a safe space so students can learn, so they can tolerate disagreement. When I was a young professor at a school where there were almost no African-Americans, one of my best students, an African-American woman, she would routinely have professors ask her about the black experience, And other students go up to her and say, can I feel your hair? They didn't mean any harm, but she felt it was an unsafe space. Not because they were disagreeable ideas, but because people weren't treating her as a person. When I start my philosophy in film class, I say to my students, tonight, you're going to watch a film about genocide. It's horrible. 
Next week, you're going to watch a film about murder. Police officer is brutally gunned down and the wrong guy is sent to jail. It's a documentary. The third week, we're watching a film about child abuse. And I tell them this. If you can't handle genocide, murder, child abuse in the first three weeks of the semester... But if you can't handle it, it's not the course for you. And then I tell them, jokingly, and if you really love this stuff, get help. (laughs) Because I want them to say, oh, it's going to be hard, but actually, we're in this together. We're supporting each other. It's safe enough to disagree, and what may not be so painful to me might be very painful to another kind of student who has a different kind of history. So I urge you to vote against this motion that safe spaces are dangerous. Thank you, Michael Roth. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Now we move on to round two. And in round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they also take questions from me and members of our live audience here in Banff, Canada. The team arguing for the motion, Susan Nossel and David Hudson, are telling us that protecting people from speech is anathema to the purpose of a university. They point out that laws are in place in terms of harassment. The team argues against the motion. Ash Bhagwat and Michael Roth make the point uh, safe spaces are nothing new. It's not a wild concept. They've existed in business, but they've also existed in the daily lives of all of us. So those are the rough dividing lines between the two sides. And there's a lot to unpack here going to the side arguing for the motion that you've made the point strongly that we're talking about emotional harm, not physical harm. But I think that I heard your opponents arguing that emotional harm is a real thing, truly debilitating, truly toxic, and can be as disruptive to the safe learning environment, destructive to the process of learning, almost as much as a punch in the nose, that it can really ruin an ability to exist and participate in the process of learning, that it's a real thing. Emotional harm counts. So, Suzanne, why don't you take that on? I agree that emotional harm is real, but that's where I think our harassment and discrimination laws come in. Additional efforts to enforce them are necessary and beneficial, but that's where the focus should lie. I think this concept of safe space, for all the reasons that we've delineated, is so malleable. I just don't think this concept helps. I mean, we don't have to prove safe spaces are always dangerous. If you think about what's classically dangerous in our society, explosives, firearms, tornadoes, they're not always dangerous, but we know they can be dangerous, and so therefore we classify them as dangerous. And I think we've said a lot to show that this idea of safe spaces can be dangerous. But to their idea of that, an insult, the examples that uh, Michael Roth used of the black uh, woman in his class of you know, people wanting to touch her hair made her feel, he used the word literally, unsafe. Do you not credit that student's experience of feeling unsafe? You know, I think the word safety I might quarrel with, but it, it definitely denotes this question of physical safety, and I think eliding that and confusing the, the line between being upset, being offended, affronted, and being actually unsafe is unhelpful. I do think it contributes to okay. uh, a sense of victimization. But I certainly think speech can cause harm. If it rose to the level of harassment, then absolutely the university needs to step in. So we're talking in a sense about how much harm, and in the example that, that your opponent just gave, uh, Ash, why don't you take that I on? I have to say, the reason I disagree with that is because, in my view, the law of discrimination and the law of harassment are really narrow. The kind of behavior you need to prove to actually make out a case of harassment is extraordinary. Um, and it's simply not, it's not enough. The whole idea of safety, I mean, semantics matters, I guess. But when we're talking about safety, we're talking about feeling like you belong. Consistent emotional harm, which tends to be suffered by minorities more often, makes you feel like you don't belong. And that, I think, is this is a problem. David? Well, look, the First Amendment is not absolute. There are some narrow, unprotected categories of speech. You don't have a First Amendment right to engage in fighting words, which is a very narrow category. You don't have a First Amendment right to commit blackmail or extort money from someone. But when we allow the government to go down the dangerous, slippery slope of defining what speech is harmful enough to be censored, censorship is a bad thing. Can can I come back to you? To stay on this focus of detailing what we all mean by what is unsafe, since there seems to be a disagreement about that, and Suzanne has addressed it in Osh, the kind of example that Michael Roth talked about of this student feeling alienated and, and, and literally unsafe. Do you accept or reject that definition of just a sense of unsafe? Well, it does hit close to home. My wife is African-American. She has very beautiful hair. A couple people came up and touched her hair. One of them touched it in a way that wasn't very friendly. She glared at them. It didn't happen again. Um, So I recognize that speech can cause harm, 
But if we allow the censorship of speech, anytime speech causes harm, we run the risk of engulfing anything that's considered controversial, anything that's considered unorthodox. They are defining safe spaces in this incredibly overbroad fashion. What we're talking about is safe spaces in which students are shielded from challenging, difficult, offensive speech. Let me just take it back to Michael Roth to respond to some of what you've heard. I think you're right that censorship can be a a slippery slope. You don't want to empower people with authority to define what's offensive. You do want to empower people who belong to a community to be able to tell you when they're offended and to be able to claim places where they can feel protected. We're not in a position where we have to wait for repetitive harassment to occur so it meets the legal definition of discrimination and harassment. We can actually be proactive because when students go to college, they actually are not signing up for a marketplace. They're signing up for a community. And in a community, you can have different kinds of spaces for different kinds of activities. You don't have the same activities in the locker room as you have in the classroom or in the fraternity as you have in the chapel. And I think providing some students the ability to say, I will not be harassed in this space. I will not be attacked in this space. I will be seen as a member of the community in this space. That's a safe space, and it's not dangerous. What's dangerous is to make believe that everybody who comes to a university like everybody who comes to a marketplace, is an equal participant in transactions. And that's just not true. When you go to a school that has a history of discrimination and prejudice and where you are a newcomer and you're trying very hard to belong. Suzanne. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think anyone's arguing that a student who is touched or dealt with in a way that's offensive has every right and absolutely should articulate that. Allies can come in and support of her. To me, that's not a safe space. I mean, when you define safe space, you actually said it should be a space, space that's safe to kind of say what you, what's really on your mind. And, you know, you talked about the person who touched her hair, and you said they didn't mean any harm. You know, they did this out of goodwill, ignorance. To me, that's a fundamental contradiction. If a safe space is a space where, you know, I could go out on a limb, I could say what's on my mind, you know, I wonder something about him, and I'm going to name it and ask him to find out about somebody who's different from me. If that's a safe space, then it's completely at odds with the idea of an institution bringing charges against someone, you know, who naively asks someone where they're from or commits, you know, some other transgression that they're not even aware of. I mean, surely the way to deal with that is not having the university kind of come in and bring up, you know, an inv- a civil rights investigation. Let's, let's go to some specific examples since we're talking about different kinds of safe spaces and just one that I want to have us talk about. This is happening on various campuses where members of a minority group will say, we want our own dorm. We want a dorm where we can let down our hair and be comfortable and not be challenged. Now, dormitories, traditionally, they're general and they're generic. So this is saying we want to take one part of what has been generic and make it our own. It's different from we want to have a club. This is we want to take a piece of the real estate and make it our own so that it's safe. What, what is your response to so, that, Ash? I don't know about dorms. I have some hesitations there, I'll be honest. Why? Because that's a level of separation, which I think undermines the community a little bit. But if you want a group, if you have a group that's defined by some sort of common feature who wants a space to meet, we're talking about being able to feel like there are times when you just want to pull back from that political world. And I think adults do it all the time. David? John, the problem is that this notion of safe spaces gets wrapped up into these other concepts. There's an environment on some college campuses of censorship. That's why we have the term safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggressions, campus speech codes, free speech zones. It involves the censorship of even political speech that others find disagreeable or offensive. Michael Roth, we, we often do hear that the pushback against safe spaces is coming from the position that they're promoted by a leftist agenda, usually protect the interests of people who have a shared ideological position, which is to the left. And that that's, re- again, that's essentially, David is, is repeating that sort of charge, that that's really what the safe spaces argument is about. I don't think that's what the safe space argument is about. I think the safe space argument is about building a community where people who have been marginalized over time can find places 
where they can find comfort in one another's company, but not to define the college experience as a whole as being one where you are cut off from antagonistic ideas. Safe spaces were vitally important for uh, gay rights. They were vitally important for feminism. And I think they're coming up today on college campuses because college campuses have more students from underrepresented groups who are trying to define their own place on these campuses. They're not trying to censor other people. They are trying to find a way they can belong to historically white and middle-class well, institutions. Let me read something that I picked up last year. A graduate of the University of Chicago published a piece in Vox. The title was, I'm a black, you Chicago graduate, safe spaces got me through college. His name is Cameron Okeke, and I'm quoting this. He said, you want me to elevate mediocre conversations about race with my personal experience and critical lens? Then you better do something about the students who are muttering about affirmative action every time I speak. And... I think what he's talking about is possibly a classroom debate where he felt directly threatened and undermined and his claim to have a place in that classroom undermined by people muttering about affirmative action. I actually know Cameron Okeke. I think it's a great piece. And, you know, they didn't get rid of the multicultural house, which is the safe space that Cameron talks about being so central to his life on campus. I mean, I think he makes a potent point about... But he's making... I, I agree with you, but he's talking about something, presumably, that happened in the classroom. Material kind of tittering. Exa- well, tittering about... The suggestion is you're here because you, you don't deserve to be here, which I imagine would be a very toxic experience. Yeah, I mean, I think it though. could be perfectly appropriate for a professor to call for an atmosphere of respect. I don't think you can say question affirmative action, period, full stop, is off-limits in campus debate. Uh, We had a protest at Wesleyan that was part of a national campaign. It was called the Affirmative Action Bake Sale. A couple of years ago, uh, students were in the university center, and they said, if you're an African-American, you pay 50 cents, and if you're a white person, you pay $1.50, or something along those lines. A group of activists, uh, many of them students of color, came to my office and said, you should shut down that protest because it's making us feel unsafe. It's ruining our day. They're disgusting racists. And I said, well, no, because it's political theater and you have to get used to the rough and tumble of ideas. But they also had places where they could go, safe spaces by their definition and by their experience, where they could recharge, where they can find solace and inspiration. And so I see nothing incompatible with supporting safe spaces and saying they're not inherently dangerous and also supporting the rough and tumble of argumentation in the public sphere. Where do we draw that line, David Hudson? Well, I think a lot of what they're talking about is freedom of association. The First Amendment does protect freedom of association, even though the five textually stated freedoms are religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition. Their broad, monolithic, amorphous definition of safe spaces could be subsumed within the First Amendment right to freedom of association. What it should not be allowed to do and cannot be allowed to do is lead to the creation of intellectual safe spaces and the censorship of protected speech. Law professor David Hudson arguing against the motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Should the classroom be free of criticism? Do we have the freedom not to listen? Coming up, questions from the audience and then closing statements when the debate continues on Intelligence Squared U.S. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are in round two of this debate where our motion is trigger warning. Safe spaces are dangerous. Now it's time for questions from the live audience in Banff, Canada. My name is Michael Bloom and my question is addressed to the side opposing the motion. Are you actually saying that a classroom can be a safe space in the sense that a student would be completely free from criticism and that those that would level a criticism against an idea held by another student in the classroom could be censored, or that a student who makes a civil statement and tries to further a debate, but one student in the class is in some way emotionally upset. In that case, the student could be sanctioned because the classroom itself at a university is a safe space. Absolutely not. I mean, I run a classroom every day. People disagree all the time. That's 
part of the discourse, that's part of the norm. No one is suggesting that. There's this question of degree, right? And a lot of it seems to me the argument against safe spaces is an argument that, well, if you go a little bit over the line, then you can't express any ideas that anyone disagrees with. No one serious believes that. It's about what the line is. And every day, classroom teachers have to figure out. The example from the University of Chicago, that's over the line, right? Muttering about affirmative action simply when an African-American student tries to speak. That's not that civil be, discourse. That, that should be stopped. That has to be stopped. I, mean, I think Here, that's I, great, I, but I don't I, think I would, it's a safe I would, space. I want to move on to uh, some more questions. Uh, my name is Lucy. My question is, do you believe that campuses are currently so inundated by aggressive and critical opinions that they are largely unsafe spaces right now? And if so, should we not be turning our attention to why this is and why students feel so unsafe? Ash, would you like to take that? One of the reasons why I so strongly do believe in safe spaces is because I think it is impossible to make the entire campus entirely safe because a large censorship machine at that level is risky and very difficult to operate. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be in charge of it. So while we need to work on that, that is more about teaching. It is more, instead of silencing, we need to learn to teach students who are saying things which, frankly, are offending other students, why those other students might find it offensive and why that might be reasonable. Now, some students are going to go ahead and do it anyway, right? But I actually think most people are decent people. Most people don't want to hurt other people's feelings. I'm a believer rather in the educative function of the university rather in the silencing function. But yes, it's a problem. David, if college and university campuses have a multitude of ideas, that's a great thing to be celebrated. It's not to be feared. We want people with different arguments to come forth with their viewpoints. That's the beauty of a college and university campus. I mean, think about when you went to college, the divisive topics, right? Abortion, affirmative action, capital punishment, uh, immigration reform, gun control. If you've always kept the same view on all those issues, then yeah, let's go have some safe space, be coddled, be thrown in a cocoon and live in an echo chamber. That's not what we want in a free society. We want more ideas. Okay, another question. The far side there. Oh, it's kind of you. Uh, yeah. So my name is Tom McLeish. I come, as you can probably hear from my accent, from a country without a First Amendment, actually without even a constitution in the first place, but we nonetheless treasure free speech. Can you clarify this for me? What is a safe space, and do people have rights not to listen? Well, let me, let me, I want to take it just the last question because I think we have been kicking around the idea of what is a safe space and perhaps it's going to be unresolved. The right not to listen, you've been accused of actually arguing for that, David. In the First Amendment community, we often talk about simply the First Amendment rights of the speaker, but there are also First Amendment rights of the listener and it's the right to receive information and ideas. And when we shut down the ideas, when we dampen discourse, we're infringing on the right to receive information and ideas as well. David, the answer to your question is, of course you have a right not to listen. In public, I may have to put up with it. But in spaces where I want to be left alone and can be left alone, of course I have a right not to listen. Right? If someone comes to my door and knocks and says, I'm going to give you a 20-minute lecture on white supremacy... I'm going to close that door. Any idea I don't want to hear, right? Which is not to say that person does not have a First Amendment right to participate in public discourse in public places, but I don't have to listen to them, even when they're speaking in a park. I don't have to stop and listen. But that's fundamentally different than a safe space that shuts off ideas in the first place. And yes, you do have a right not to listen. Justice John Marshall Holland referred to it directly in Cohen v. California when he said, avert your eyes. But that's in public places. That was in the L.A. County Courthouse. Well, a lot of college and university campuses are public. I'm saying that college campuses can be segmented, right? I'm not suggesting that the square in a college campus can be converted into a safe space. It can't. Say a black house or a student immigration activist. There could be a diversity of ideas there. There could be criticism there. There could be deep disputes over tactics, methods, priorities. You know, it, it can get contentious. But that doesn't mean ideas are excluded, arguments are excluded, criticism is excluded. That's what we're excluded. saying, that if you can have an African-American house, you can have a Hillel on campus. The fact that you go there to talk to people who share some of your ideas doesn't mean that all ideas are excluded there and that there's no freedom of speech. Right, but then you're not you free of the danger of retaliation or attack. Oh, I mean, that can happen even in these closed spaces, well, retali- right? You, disagreement is not the same as retaliation and, and attack. You have disagreement and you have the exchange of ideas, but you do so within a border. <laughs> and that is different in classrooms than it is in the Hillel. It's different. 
different in the chapel. It's different Sunday morning than it is when the chapel is used for something else. And the idea that you couldn't segment the campus into some spaces that are safe for some students some of the time, uh, that, that seems an odd idea. Okay, I'd like to go. Okay, I'd like to go. Sir. The most compelling argument that I heard for the for side is the side from the against side, which is how Mike runs his classroom, which is to say what we're talking about is a failure of leadership. Professors who are unable or unwilling to create that context and draw the red lines and say, you're going to listen. If you don't want to listen, you have to leave because we're in the classroom. I, okay, let's, I understand now. Let's take... Uh, I, I think Mike, it's, we would all Mike agree, I, I think, that it would be preferable if in classroom experience for professors to create an environment for a robust exchange of ideas, but where everyone felt included, that they were full members of that discussion, and that that's much better handled by the teacher herself or himself than it is by a a dean or even a president. Okay, let's go to another question. Thank you. Um, the world is not a safe space, and we survive by learning to make our own safe spaces. So if we as young people have universities creating safe spaces for us, how will we ever learn to carve out our own safe space in the world? Let's take that question to Ash Bhagwat. Great question. I, I think the answer is simple. It's, the problem is you have a home that you can retreat to. These students do not. Because they are surrounded by the university at all times, if the university says no, you're out of luck. What are you going to do? It's a special circumstance. Campuses are strange creatures because they are a mixture of many, many, many different things. And to treat them as a whole, as if they're sort of generic, I think is wrong. University, in my view, has absolute right to help students create safe spaces of the sort that when they are adults off campus and have control over their lives more, they will do for themselves, but the university should not make the entire campus a safe space. No one is talking about suppressing ideas. Response from the other side? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it, it's a bit of a confused argument because if it's their home 24-7 and they need safety to be able to inhabit that home, inevitably that brings up the role of the institution in generating that safety, which I think you agree with. So it's not just a matter of what happens when the four of us gather in a room together or a club meets. It's really a larger question of what happens on campus. And I think this term safety with its malleability and nebulousness, one person's safety being dangerous for another person, the kinds of criticisms and attacks and perhaps undermining of emotional safety that can happen even in a closed space just makes this term very problematic, and it leads to what you're talking about, which is a sense on the part of the institution that they need to step in, that students can't navigate this for themselves, that they have to come in, and inevitably, you know, they're coming in to suppress speech, and the concern of safety is being pitted against speech, and it opens the door to censorship. So that's why this term can be dangerous. We don't have to prove it's inherently dangerous. We just have to prove that it can be dangerous. Michael Roth. Yeah, lots of things can be dangerous. That is true. I I do think we have to remember that these students are well aware that when they graduate, they'll have to make their own spaces. They're well aware that in the United States today, that they will be entering in a world where they'll be much less likely to interact with people who don't share their views. They'll be entering a world of much more intensive inequality any previous generation has seen for at least 100 years. They'll be entering in a world of much greater segregation than we've seen in a long, long time in the United States. They're well aware of the hostility of the world. And so it seems to me that in a learning environment, you're not censoring ideas, you're trying to give people the power to consider ideas that are radical for them, that challenge their presuppositions. They do so while feeling they are full members of a university community. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. And now we move on to round three. Round three will be closing statements by each debater in turn. To make her closing statement in support of the motion, here is Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America. So they have argued that the campus must be a welcoming environment that fosters belonging for diverse students, and that to do so, we have to open the door to the policing of speech through the maintenance of safe spaces. We have argued that, yes, the campus must address the needs of demographically diverse student bodies, that they need to create greater belonging, but that this can and must be accomplished without any compromising of the most robust protections for free speech or academic freedom. We tell a story about UC Berkeley, one of the most diverse campuses in the United States, in the state of California, the most diverse state in the union. It's a place where 
Minority students comprise a large portion of the student population. There are a lot of faculty of color. Uh, there are all kinds of student organizations. You know, if such a thing were to exist, it is a space where students of color feel very comfortable. And so what happened on that campus? There was an effort to bring conservative speaker who was very controversial to campus, Milo Yiannopoulos. The university became alarmed. They put very strict restrictions on when he could come, where he could come, restrictions to the point where people weren't going to be able to attend the speech. You know, what happened when he finally came to campus was things exploded, became violent, there was property damage, the university close to a million dollars addressing security needs. And Department of Justice has intervened in a lawsuit now challenging the university. Why did this happen? I went there, spoke to Republican students, and they said it happened because they felt so marginalized on campus. They couldn't speak up. They couldn't book rooms for their meetings. They couldn't get faculty advisors for their clubs. We need to make sure that our campuses are open both to all sets of people and all ideas. For that, please vote for the proposition. Thank you, Suzanne Ossel. And that proposition again... Trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. And here, making his closing statement against the proposition, Ash Bhagwat, law professor at UC Davis. So I'm going to start by responding to Suzanne. I think she's done what I said people do, which is conflating the controversial speaker issue with the safe space issue. No one is talking, at least on our side, about making the entire college campus a ex-ideology-free zone. That's simply not what we're supporting. There is this story that's being told about how current students are oversensitive, they're snowflakes. I hate that word. I've been teaching for 24 years. This is utter nonsense. My students today are just as tough-minded, just as independent, just as able to listen to ideas they disagree with as ever in the past quarter century. It's just not true. They are more assertive. They are less willing to accept inequities that they see in the world around them. And I think part of what's going on is people don't like that. When you're an outsider or feel like an outsider, safe spaces are more important. The most important safe spaces in American history were African-American churches during Jim Crow and the Civil Rights era. They were important precisely because they were safe and places to organize the Civil Rights Movement. That's basically the same dynamic as what's going on on campuses and throughout our society today. And I think the question you should ask yourself is, not do you like free speech? I love free speech. I've spent my career writing about how great free speech is. The question is, do you like free speech everywhere all the time? Or do you sometimes just want to be left alone with people who you like and agree with? And if you do feel that way sometimes, then I feel you have to vote against this motion because students have that right too. Thank you, Ashwagwat. The motion again, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. And here making his closing statement in support of the motion, David Hudson Jr., First Amendment scholar and law professor at Vanderbilt University. I'm a licensed boxing judge. I've judged 12 world title fights across the globe, but this is even a greater fight. It's the fight for free speech in a free society. The arguments made about the civil rights movement, you know what John Lewis said about the civil rights movement without the First Amendment? It would be a bird without wings. The First Amendment was absolutely essential to the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. It was the precedent of Terminello versus City of Chicago that protected the rights of an anti-Semitic speaker that protected the rights of civil rights activist Fred Shuttlesworth. We must protect free speech. Where else can speech thrive except at a college and university campus? What's the primary reason that people go to a college or university campus? They go to learn. They go for intellectual development. They go to confront new ideas. They go to develop as a fully functioning human being. The First Amendment provides that. A high purpose of the First Amendment is the right to individual self-fulfillment, the right to freedom of expression, the right to viewpoint. I close with the words of John Milton and Areopagitica. Though all the winds of doctrine are let loose to play upon the earth, so truth be in the field. We do injuriously by licensing and prohibiting to misdoubt her strength. Let her and falsehood grapple. Whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. Keep colleges free and open. Keep them open to ideas. Colleges are not kindergarten. Thank you. Thank you, David Hudson. The motion trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Here making his closing statement against the motion, Michael Roth, president of Wesleyan University. I think uh, we have wonderful advocates for free speech. Remember Milton said his call for free speech is only for Protestants. Catholics, he said, then we extirpate. So everybody has their limit of who they will protect. 
and at colleges and universities today, it is very much the case that there is a strong bias, sometimes on the faculty, often on the faculty, often on the students, towards the left. This is not new, perhaps something to do with the age of students, uh, but something to do with the politics of our country right now. I have started a program at Wesleyan University to uh, bring more conservative thinkers to campus, more conservative professors, army uh, generals or colonels who are retiring from the armed forces to teach courses in international relations and political science, because I think our conservative students need to feel they too can express their views. And I'll close with a story, uh, not from the annals of the law books, but from a student of mine who came uh, to talk to me uh, this year, and she said, as a religious student... She did not feel that she could go to class and be taken seriously. She felt that when she went to her English professor's class and she said, I am a believer, I am a student of faith, the professor thought, well, you're an absolutist, you can't take ideas seriously. She wasn't saying, the student wasn't saying that. The student was saying, I could take a discussion of religion seriously, but don't dismiss me because I'm a Christian. Don't dismiss me because of who I am. She has no problem with the rough and tumble of intellectual debate. She has a problem with prejudice that retaliates against who you are and punishes you for what you believe. We need spaces for those students so they can recharge and be ready for the next debate. Thank you, Michael Roth. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has been more persuasive. The resolution is this. Trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. In the first vote, 57% of you agreed with the motion. 25% were against and 18% were undecided. Again, those are the first results. The team arguing for the motion, their first vote was 57%. Their second vote was 56%. They lost a percentage point. The team against the motion, their first vote was 25%. Their second vote was 35%. They pulled up over 10 percentage points. That's enough to make them the winner. The team arguing against the motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Our winner by our audience here tonight. Thank you very much. I'm John Donvan. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Fairmont Springs Hotel in Banff, Canada. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Clea Chang is chief operating officer. Leah Mathau is vice president of programming. Shale Mara is manager of editorial operations. Taylor Quimby, Aaron Dalton, and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the IQ2 U.S. app. For more information or to purchase tickets to our future events, visit iq2us.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rain, and Emily and Antoine Van Achtmill. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donvan, Thank you. One last thing. We are now asking for your help. When you give Intelligence Squared U.S. five stars on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, you help other people find our podcast. So if you enjoy our debates, please rate and review us. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 